Across the centuries, God has periodically altered the course of human history by, by directly intervening through giving a child of promise. A child of promise is a baby whose miraculous birth is announced beforehand, either directly by God or, or indirectly by one of his angels serving as a messenger. And through these children, God acts dramatically to advance salvation history. They perform great works to glorify God. They advance his eternal plan to restore creation. Some of the most famous children of promise include Isaac, the son of Abraham, who was born to Abraham's infertile wife in their extreme old age. There was Samson, also born to aged and infertile parents, whose judgeship began the liberation of Israel from the Philistines. There's John the Baptist, once again born to aged and infertile parents, and his ministry prepared the way for Jesus. And then there is, of course, the most famous and important child of promise of all, Jesus himself, whose birth was announced by angels and who was born to a young virgin to bring about the salvation of the world. The astonishingly good news of the Bible that we're going to be digging into today is this truth, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you are also a child of promise, just like these I have named. This is Paul's joyful conclusion as he, he works through his final arguments out of a series of arguments we've been looking at in chapters 3 and 4 of the letter of Galatians. His final argument regarding the superiority of the new covenant in Jesus Christ over the old covenant of the law. This is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, Paul's argument here is complex, to say the least. It is, I think, safe to say that for most of us listening with modern American ears, his argument is kind of strange sounding. And so we're going to walk through it one step at a time this morning. But the, but the bottom line for us is this good news that through Christ we are free citizens of the new Jerusalem. 
And so in this passage, Paul is primarily arguing for expelling false teachers from the church. As I mentioned earlier, this is the last in a series of arguments. If you've been with us through this whole series, we've walked through uh, all of Galatians to this point, and particularly in chapters 3 and 4, Paul brings forth a series of arguments that he is making to the Christians in Galatia, these Christians who are falling for flattery and appeals from false teachers who, who want to take them away from the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And they most specifically want to take them away by adding things to the gospel, adding rituals and requirements and rules from the Jewish law. And so like all of his previous arguments in chapter 3 and 4, once again, Paul is arguing that the new covenant in Christ is superior to the old covenant of the Mosaic law, that we do not have to follow that old covenant, that we should not chase after it when we have been given something far greater, the new covenant in Christ. But out of all the arguments that we have been walking through, I, for me, this one today is the strangest of the batch. Right? It's an allegorical appeal to Old Testament events from the book of Genesis. And I will confess, it's not a type of argument that really resonates with me personally. Right? I'm not an allegorical argument guy. I'm not an example argument guy. So this is a passage that challenges me, has always challenged me to kind of understand why it's here. But, but nonetheless, scholars, many scholars, will actually contend that out of all the arguments in chapter 3 and 4, this may well have been the most powerful argument to Paul's readers because they, unlike us, were used to allegorical arguments and allegorical interpretation of Old Testament events. This was a normal thing in rabbinic Judaism of that time, that they would take the Old Testament events and then interpret them as an allegory, as if everything is symbolic of something else, and then they would extend the, the interpretation from that. And because we are so unfamiliar with this type of argumentation, I just want to briefly explain Paul's argument before we celebrate two amazing truths about our life in Christ. Verse 21 begins the whole argument with what is, quite honestly, some sarcasm. Right? The new Christians in Galatia have become fascinated by the rules and rituals of the Old Testament law. Right, One meaning of the word law in those days were the specific rules and rituals laid out in the, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they are fascinated by the law. They are wanting to follow the law. And so Paul takes a second meaning of the word law, which is it was just used to generally describe the first five books of the Bible. And he says, since you like the law so much, I'm going to give you an argument from the law, from the Old Testament books. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Verses 22 and 23 introduce what for them would have been a very familiar story of Abraham and his two oldest sons, Ishmael and Isaac. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now what's all that about? If you go back to pretty much the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, God promises Abraham descendants, even though he and his wife Sarah were very old, 
and infertile. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, referring to a a distant relative of Abraham's who was part of his household, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, Abraham firmly believed this promise, right? It might be a challenging promise for us. I think the promise comes when Abraham is about 75 years old and, and Sarah is, is also in that neighborhood age-wise. So it might be difficult for us to swallow this promise, the idea of having a baby then. Uh, but he firmly believed it. But nonetheless, the evidence of Scripture is that he and Sarah, after quite a while of waiting for this promise to come true, decided God needed a helping hand. And so he took Sarah's slave, Hagar, to be his second wife. And from that relationship, Abraham's first son, Ishmael, was conceived in the usual fashion. It's described in Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. In those days, a wife could get credit for having kids if her servant provided the kids for her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And they went into Hagar, and she conceived. (coughs) Now later, of course, Sarah conceived miraculously, and Isaac, the real child of promise, was born. And although Ishmael was born earlier, Isaac was the promised descendant of Abraham that God had always had in mind, through whom salvation would come to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And any Jewish reader of Paul's letter would know this, and they would agree that Isaac was the child of promise, that Isaac was the one who was favored. They would identify themselves with Isaac as descendants of him, while at the same time, they had come to associate all Gentiles, all people outside the faith, not just Arabs, but all people outside the faith uh, with as descendants of Ishmael, symbolically. Well, Paul is about to turn this whole identification on its head. And so verses 24 and 25 introduce the two covenants of God. The old covenant is the law of Moses, given on Mount Sinai to reveal the absolute holiness and righteousness and goodness of God by the giving of hundreds of rules and procedures that a person would have to follow if they were going to ever be holy enough and righteous enough and good enough to enter into the presence of God. Paul calls this covenant the covenant of slavery. He calls it this because it traps us in our sin and in our repeated failure and in our own inadequacy. It traps us on a treadmill of sin management from which we cannot escape on our own. And he writes, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, 
what does Paul mean by the present Jerusalem? He is talking about the physical city of Jerusalem at that time, which he says is in slavery in two dimensions, right? One is in slavery spiritually because it was still enslaved to sin and death through the law. And it was also enslaved politically because Jerusalem was under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And so then he contrasts this in verses 26 and 27 with the new covenant in Christ's blood. The covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This new covenant was inaugurated at the, Christ, the cross of Christ. It is inaugurated when Jesus, who, as the eternal Son of God, who had nonetheless stepped into our world, taking on a human nature, and had lived the perfect life free of sin that we cannot, that we are incapable of because of our, our personal deep love for sin and selfishness. This covenant was inaugurated when, when Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself on that cross, nailed to the cross, he and your sin and my sin, to serve as the innocent and infinite sacrifice required to atone for the guilt of the world, to bear God's righteous anger towards each of us for the things that we have done in our lives that we should not have done. And he did this despite never having sinned himself. And so at the cross, Jesus established the new covenant, a new covenant of grace, right? What is grace? It is undeserved merit. It is something that is unearned. It is the favor of God that we do not deserve. A new covenant of grace so that despite our weakness and sin, we can still approach the perfect and holy God who created us in his image and who loves us deeply. And through his sacrificial death, all who put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior receives forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is the covenant Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28 at the Last Supper, when it says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant gives every follower of Christ genuine freedom from sin and death. This is what Paul means in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And he reinforces his point in verse 27, which was quoting Isaiah 54.1, which Val read earlier. right? Which is right there in that section, which is celebrating the, the redemptive work of the suffering servant and the outpouring of blessing in the world that flows from, from the work of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant Isaiah spoke of. And because Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Scripture, all of the promises in, in the law, all of the promises in the prophets, because of that, all Christians are children of promise. You and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are children of promise, as Paul affirms in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And as free children of promise living under the new covenant, Paul says to expect persecution from those who are still enslaved to legalism and, and sin and death, right? And he associates Ishmael's mockery of Isaac 
with the persecution of Christians in his day by those who were who are still seeking to live by the Jewish law. It says in verse 29, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Right? If you are a child of promise, born of the Spirit, you should anticipate persecution from those who do not understand and are still trying to save themselves by rule following and ritual. Paul's ultimate point that he's been building to all along lies in verse 30. He quotes Sarah from Genesis 21.10. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Okay, we have to be in the flow of this allegorical argument. we got to stay with the symbolic allegorical interpretation and realize that as he closes his argument, he is telling his friends they need to drive out the false teachers in the church. And then he urges us to rest in our true identity in Christ in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is Paul's argument. I thought it was important that we walk through it because it is, again, not really the way we in the Western world tend to argue and, and construct our lines of thought. But, but I wanted to trace that because within it are two incredibly important and vital and, and really, as we embrace it, life-transforming truths about how we are to think of ourselves and live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And the first is that we are citizens of the new Jerusalem. You see, verse 26 says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, what on earth is the Jerusalem above? Right, the Jerusalem above is also called the New Jerusalem. That might be more familiar to some of you. Right, it is the, the perfection of Jerusalem, the ultimate state of Jerusalem that awaits us in heaven and is most vividly described for us in Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, right? Hence the Jerusalem above. At the end of time when Christ returns, that Jerusalem will come down. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. My friends, for believers in Jesus Christ, this is our forever home, the Jerusalem above. Whatever it is that we suffer or lack in this life will be brief and momentary compared to the joy of an eternity in God's presence in this Jerusalem above, where we will enjoy perpetual fellowship with God. Our sufferings in this life, and believe me, I understand, our sufferings are very real and they are very painful. And they may last for years or decades. But they will pale in comparison to God's complete and total comfort. As all pain, all sorrow, all grief pass away forever. 
In the New Jerusalem, we will enjoy and share in God's holiness, as described in Revelation 21, verses 22 to 27. Right, This is our future. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is despicable or, or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You will enter there. There we will have the perfection and the holiness that eludes us here on earth as we continually fall into temptation and sin. In the New Jerusalem, we'll enjoy God's healing and restoration of all creation as is described for us in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 4, which is the reversing of the curse and the agony of the earth. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb to the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. This is our citizenship, but we also need to recognize that as citizens of the New Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem above, we have a profound responsibility from this day until the day we enter our true home. And it is this, that no matter how much we love and faithfully serve our home country or place of birth, as Christ followers, we can never let earthly matters take priority over the love and the commandments and the principles and the values and the work of God's kingdom. God's kingdom must be first and foremost in our hearts above all other things. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, Paul contrasts people, including I think some church people, whose fundamental citizenship is still here on earth, is still focused on the, the life in, of this life and not the greater things of the kingdom. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Right? Join in imitating Paul. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Right? I think he is heartbroken as he sees fellow church members walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their first loyalty, their first priority is to the comforts and the commitments of this life. But Paul continues, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so as we live our lives, as we are working and playing, as we are going to school and learning, as we are loving, 
We cannot merely focus on earthly efforts to perfect our lives or our families or our businesses or our nations or our world. Our highest priority has to be serving God by expanding His kingdom, living truly as the hands and feet of Christ, representing and demonstrating Christ to the most vulnerable, to those most distant from God. As citizens of the New Jerusalem, we need to pay attention to Paul's warning about teachers. We need to be very aware of what we are being taught by those with the platform or the microphone or the megaphone in our culture. Verse 30 counsels us we need to cast out any false teachers, whether they be in church or on screen or in print or an electronic media or on social media who are are trying to turn our primary loyalty away from God's kingdom and towards the matters of this world, right? Again, the earthly collection of stuff, even the advancement of earthly nations and, and perhaps those who are falsely equating the two, our earthly concerns in the kingdom of God. We must vigilantly guard our eyes and ears and hearts and minds and cast out false influences from our lives. And then the second great truth here is that as children of promise, we are truly free in Christ. Right, this is Paul's conclusion in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then in Christ you are deeply free at every level of mind, body, and soul by the power of Jesus Christ in your life. Now, you may not feel free this morning. You may feel very much trapped, perhaps by financial obligations, perhaps by patterns and habits, perhaps by addictions, or, or, or just things that you feel like you can't escape from. <coughs> but through Christ, there is freedom. You are not actually enslaved to these things. You are free from things like slavery to legalism and having to follow rules to get right and stay right with God. You are free from your past, from the mistakes of the past, from the sin of the past, from shame or hurt of the past, from guilt, the things that may still dominate your thoughts today. They don't have to. You are free in Christ. In Christ, these things, no matter how serious they are, no matter how unforgivable or unforgettable you think they are in Christ, they do not define who you are and they don't control your future. You are free from death. Though it is very likely that our bodies will die one day unless Christ returns first, we will nonetheless live forever in God's presence. And so we, as believers in Jesus Christ, do not need to fear death or go to extremes to, to kind of defer and delay the inevitable because death is simply the gateway to life in God's presence. In Christ, you are free from earthly labels, from the burdens and expectations that people might have piled on you all the years of your life, or that you might be placing on yourself. Right? In Christ, we aren't defined by our education or our test scores, our accomplishments or bank balances, our appearances or social status or our sexuality. 
If you've been hurt by terrible things in your past, Christ can free you from those things because in Christ you are a new creation. And each day the mercies of God are new. If you think there's no escaping a particular lifestyle or culture or habit or sin because you feel like, well, that's just the way you are. That is not the way you are in Christ. The truth is that in Christ, you are a new creation filled with the Spirit of Christ. This is who you are. We are free from all else. In Christ, there's no condemnation for our past, and in Christ, there is no condemnation for the mistakes that we are going to make in the future. All we have to do is repent of them when they come and ask God's forgiveness. And Scripture assures us that He is faithful to forgive. In Christ, we are free to serve and please God every day of our life, not out of guilt, but because we love God and are grateful for all that He has done for us in Christ. John chapter 8, 31 and 32 describes exactly what we're talking about here. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Christ, this is who you really are. You are free indeed. Once again, we must heed Paul's warning here, casting out those in our lives who would try to steal our freedom by pushing us back into guilt and to shame and to rules and to laws or, or by adding gatekeepers between us and the Lord so they can try and bring us back into subjugation to all the lies and the labels of the world. And I say, take Paul's advice. Don't tolerate these kinds of attacks. Cast out those influences on your life who want to drag you down from the elevated place where God has placed you in Christ. Where literally right now, Scripture says, we reign with Christ in freedom. Because every believer in Christ is a child of promise. Every believer in Christ, regardless of place of birth, or race, or gender, or bank balance, or degree, or employment history, or marital status, or family condition, or political alignment, is a free citizen of the New Jerusalem. This, my friends, is who you are, and do not let anyone else tell you otherwise. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this. And I pray that you would help us to rejoice ever more richly in this reality. That through Christ, through faith in Him, you have extended your grace and mercy onto us and made us children of promise. Just as there we have seen children of promise throughout your word. For we rejoice that through faith in Christ we have been set free. Our very identity is, is transformed. Our past left behind. But Father, I suspect that there are people this morning who are still struggling with this identity because we all do at times. And so, Lord, I, I just want to offer this time, Lord, to let people confess to you silently and 
prayers, to lift up those things they feel are, are burdening them down and holding them back and, and holding them hostage to their past or to their present. Lord, hear us as we lay before you the burdens of our hearts that would keep us from feeling truly free. And Lord, I lift up those who are struggling with the sense that they're not free, perhaps because of financial reasons. Lord, I pray that you would help them, as Paul says, to recognize the riches they have in Christ. To not feel limited, but instead feel free in Christ. And Lord, for those who struggle with a burden of, of illness or disability, Lord, help them to feel free, to recognize who they are in Jesus Christ. And while the illness and the disability will not necessarily go away in this life, they can be free citizens of the New Jerusalem today and every day until they meet you in heaven. Lord, for those who struggle with addictions and habits, and patterns of life that are against your will, Lord. I pray that you would help them first of all to accept forgiveness in your Son, Jesus Christ, to accept that they are truly forgiven. And for those who have not yet made that commitment, I would encourage them, Lord. I pray that they would turn their life over to Christ. I pray that you would help them realize just how clean and beautiful they are in your eyes. And Lord, that you would set them free from these temptations and these habits and these patterns, Lord. That your spirit would bring transformation in their lives. Lord, there's so many voices in our lives, in our culture, trying to hold us back, to burden us and make us feel trapped. Trapped by our past, trapped by our present, trapped by a lack of future. Lord, these are the lies of the world. I pray that you would set our hearts free. And as part of that freedom, Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly put your kingdom first. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to our hearts now anything that we are holding higher and more important than your kingdom. Whether it is something in our home life, our work life, just our worldview, Lord. I pray that you would speak to all of us present, reveal the mistaken priorities of our heart and convict us of these things. Lord, speak to us in this silence.
Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a knowledge that no matter what our passport might say, as believers in Jesus Christ, our first and foremost citizenship is in your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would transform the way we live our lives to reflect that that priority. That we would be willing to set down the comforts and patterns that we're used to, that the world applauds, and take up the mantle of being true representatives and ambassadors of your Son in all of the strangeness that that will look like. I pray that you will give us the boldness to live as citizens of your kingdom. That you would help us be faithful to grow your kingdom here in eastern Prince William County and, and wherever our journeys may take us, Lord. Fill us with love for your kingdom and a boldness of spirit. And Lord, as we prepare to begin worshiping again in song, I just would ask that if you have laid something on someone's heart today, perhaps a desire to to truly put their faith in your son, or a desire to commit their life in a new way to serving your kingdom, or desire to, to make this place their home for ministry as they seek to grow the kingdom in their neighborhood. Lord, I pray that as we, we sing, that you would lay that burden on those hearts and that they would be faithful to respond. Lord, we encourage you to just help them find a, someone to pray with if they'd like us to pray over them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.